Welcome to Loud Girls in Quiet Rooms, a podcast about current issues in libraries, museums, and archives. I'm Catherine. I'm Courtney. And today we're going to be talking about libraries, museums, and archives response to the current refugee crisis. Sorry we left you guys for a little while there. Yeah, that was unplanned. Life got crazy, as it does. Um, But we went one really sad one, one really happy one, now we're here to kind of balance it out, maybe? Bring it down, bring it back up? (laughs) It is a little bit of both. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so Courtney, you want to start us off with some information? Sure. So these are just some kind of basic statistics. Um, The U.S. resettled 84,995 people last year alone. Um, And in 2015, there were 60 million refugees around the world. Now, refugees come from places that we would expect, like Pakistan, Iraq, Afghanistan, but also in places that we don't think about, like Albania, Cambodia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, um, the Central African Republic. So there's many countries that have refugees that are needing to be resettled or currently living in camps. Um, Syria led the world with over 3 million people displaced in 2014, and they're followed by Somalia, who... um, had over 1 million people displaced in 2014. So that's a lot of people, and those people are coming into communities, and they need access to resources, Mm -hmm. and they need access to cultural enrichment and, like, ways to bond with um, their new locations and their communities. So we're going to talk about the ways in which libraries, museums, and archives can help facilitate that and are currently helping to facilitate that. Um, I'm going to start us off by talking about libraries, and you guys, I get to talk about my home city with a little bit of pride today. Um, I'm from Salt Lake City, or I'm I'm from outside of Salt Lake City, Utah, but today I'm going to claim it um, because I lived there for a long time. But um, the Salt Lake Public Library, which is a beautiful place, and if you ever get the chance to go, you should go. You've seen pictures, right? Yes, I have. Anyway, they gave tours to resettled families, I think in... 2014, only 12 families had been resettled um, from the Syrian refugee crisis in Utah, but they're expecting hundreds more. So they gave people tours, um, and they have this really great partnership with the University of Utah's University Neighborhood Partners Program. It's called UNP. And they teach classes in English. They have workshops about citizenship, um, employment. They have after-school programs, and they provide mental health support. So one of the things I really liked about that when I was reading it was not only that it's in my home state and city, but also that, like, they made that effort to make refugees feel really comfortable at the library by initially giving them tours. Mm-hmm. Um, because you won't go in somewhere where, where you, you don't know where anything is. Exactly. And if you don't speak the language, mm-hmm. it's even harder. So a couple of ideas that we can take from that or just ideas that I've seen around uh, for ways that libraries can help is offering dual language programming, like really finding out um, what languages are represented. In some communities, it's over 100, but you can, you know, find ways to work all 100 of those languages into different programs and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Really reach out to your community members and see who speaks these languages. You don't have to know all 100 languages, but someone in your city does. One of the strategies they that I saw recommended a lot of places was connecting with students and children. They learn English so quickly, and they can really help their families become more comfortable in the library. Like, I've seen 
kids who aren't native speakers but know more English than their parents, like, dragging their parents around the library being like, look at this, look at this, okay, this is where the computers are, you know, teaching their families, Um, which I think is really cool. And it also helps other students, um, like, maybe native language speakers in the community to learn a little bit more about their new neighbors. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's really important. And then one thing that I think is really important and just, like, part of working in a library is you can't deny someone access ever. And I know that a lot of libraries have policies about, like, you have to have proof of address and things like that, but, like, you have to be understanding. You know, you have to accommodate for people's circumstances. Right. Like, nobody asked to be a refugee. Yeah. (laughs) So, I don't know. I think, like, having some sort of, at least, like, empathy for that situation is really important. Yeah, because... Libraries are a place where you can have access to things like computers for free, mm-hmm. which I know a lot of, uh, there's like a lot of politicians that are like, ah, poor people have smartphones, why? But it's like, you need the internet to look for jobs, you need them, you need the internet to do a lot of different things. Right, and to complete need, paperwork that you have to complete if you're a refugee. Right, you need access to reliable Technology and libraries are a great source for that because you can access that for free, but not if you're yeah. being turned away because you don't have proof of... Of address or yeah. proof of, like, certain things that you might not have yet. Yeah, and one of the other things is, like, that I just thought of is the internet is really valuable in helping people stay connected to their family and friends who might not be there. 100%. I don't even know how I haven't thought about that until this moment. But, you know, like, we all stay connected through the internet. So do refugees. And being alone and isolated, Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine. Yeah, because the thing about being resettled as a refugee is you don't get to choose where you go. Right. So your family could be in Australia, you could be in Chicago, and... And your best friend could be God knows where, you know, like you could be so far away from each other and having that sort of way to connect to your community Mm -hmm. um, is really, really invaluable. I'm going to tell you about another cool project. Have you ever heard about the Human Library Project? I have not. Really? Okay. really interesting. So it's this Danish thing and actually a lot of libraries have um, adapted it. They started it, I think in the 90s. And basically what it is, is it lets patrons check out another person. You know, I think I have heard about yeah, this. Yeah, I might have mentioned it, or, like, you've probably just heard about it in general, because it's, like, a really cool thing. So, yeah, basically you have people volunteer to be, like, a human library book. They call them titles, which I think is really cute. And then people without that experience, like, whether it's, like, I'm a young mom, or, like, I'm a um, cancer survivor, or I'm a survivor of sexual assault, or, like... I'm just a person who's lived in this neighborhood forever, or I'm a refugee. And you get to ask that person questions about what their experience is like. You get to learn from that person. And, like, if someone in your community feels really comfortable answering those questions, that's a great, great way of getting your community to engage with refugees rather than just Mm -hmm. getting refugees to engage with their new community. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important to remember that you're not just accommodating refugees, you're also trying to educate your patrons about what this means for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really just, you know, libraries are places that empathy can grow. And then one more thing, and then I'll stop, like, ranting about libraries for maybe, like, three minutes, <laughs> <laughs> is 
digitization projects. And I was just thinking about this like really vaguely um, because I was in a digital preservation class and this group did a group project about digitizing people's photos, teaching them how to uh, digitize their photos and why they would do it, you know, like how important digital preservation is. And I was thinking in the context of refugees, like you might have important documents or just, you know, pictures and like memories and things that you don't want to lose. But just because mm -hmm. you've been resettled doesn't mean you're going to stay there. You might get a job somewhere else. You might like have to move. Mm -hmm. Your life is really up in the air. So I think it would be a really good idea for someone, and I don't know if this has been done yet, hopefully it has, to like do a scanning project with people, like have a day where people can come in and um, scan either their documents or their pictures, like really just like don't make any rules, let them do what they want. Um, put it on a USB drive, maybe that you provide if you can get funding for it, which I think you could probably get a grant for that, or you could just write into your budget. Mm -hmm. um, and then, like, let people feel a little bit more secure about things that are important to them. Yeah, that's that's a really good idea. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be really cool. Um, and then I'm just going to briefly mention archives. Uh, the University of East London has the largest refugee archives. Um, it's a collection of materials relating to the study of forced migration and refugees. It's a really good source of information. Um, I think that they are doing a lot to, like, make their collections available digitally, but I don't see that much about uh, things that are contributed by actual refugees. So that mm -hmm. was a little weird to me. It seems mostly academic. So okay. that's the thing that archives should be thinking about, though, is, like, maybe taking oral histories, maybe, like, showing people where, you know, they can... Um, donate their papers, maybe, you know, helping to organize, things like that. So that was really vague, and um, I'd love to do more research about it, which I think I will, because now I'm really interested. Yeah, I, that was, uh, talking about, like, oral histories, that was one of my initial ideas for my capstone project. Oh, really? Was to do an oral history of um, the refugee community in Rogers Park. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, because that's the one that I'm familiar with. But then I was like, how do I even start to, you know, like, right. it, I, I was a little ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> um, which it's not a bad thing. But no, absolutely like, not. Like, but... yeah, I, I would love to do that at some point. Yeah. I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, I think that would be a really cool project. All right. Well, <laughs> I've said my piece about libraries and slightly archives. Can we please <laughs> hear about museums? Yes, we can. Um, so I'm going to talk about programming first and the really only, uh, refugee specific programming that I found was in Germany, in Berlin specifically. So in Berlin, there's this museum called the Pergamon Museum, which has a bunch of architecture from the ancient world. And by architecture, I mean like architecture, not like architecture fragments. They rebuilt an entire temple that what? was in Turkey, I think. Oh my god. And they have um, a lot of different items in their collection, but specifically they have the Ishtar Gate from Babylon. Wow. Um, which is located in modern day Iraq. Yeah. I saw it. It's amazing. Wait, you and went there? Yeah, I've been there. Oh my god. <laughs> That's it's, so cool. It was a really great museum. Um, there's, you know, it's debatable as whether or not these objects should be here in the first place, but that's not the point of this episode. I just thought I would 
you know, throw that in there because I am thinking about it. Yeah, go back um, to our looting episode and we can, yeah. <laughs> you can talk that out there. Um, yeah, but the Pergamon hires Syrian and Iraqi refugees to give tours of these objects and these pieces of architecture. Wow. And they give these tours free of charge and they want to target refugees specifically so that they feel, like, connected to the museum because a lot of these objects come from, you know, their their own history, their the history of their home countries. That's um, amazing. Which is really cool. Yeah, I really like that idea. And the German Historical Museum, which is also in Berlin, um, have this initiative where they wanted to welcome refugees in the museum by way of education about Germany post-World War II. Oh, cool. And they said that that it was interesting to them that these people were specifically drawn to photos of destroyed Berlin because it gave them hope that, you know, their own countries could rebuild after seeing what what Berlin looked like post-World War II and what it looks like now is, like, so different. And isn't that awesome? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm like, that's making me a little bit emotional. <laughs> It's really great. Wow. Yeah. So I just like happened across that article a few months ago and I was just like, this is incredible. Yeah. That's such a cool way of like connecting the culture that they're um, sort of like moving into with their own culture and and just like really connecting both communities. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) It's cool. They're doing good work. They are. Um, so by way of like exhibitions, I wanted to just touch on a few. So there have been um, some shows that are about refugees that are like very recently. Uh, one is just called Refugee, and it was at the Annenberg Space for Photography in Los Angeles and the museum in D.C. And that was a photo exhibition about the plight of Syrian refugees specifically. Then there was Insecurities, Tracing Displacement and Shelter at MoMA, which is in New York City. And that was an exhibition more about architectural answers to the refugee crisis. So they talk about um, the architecture of like the camps and also temporary housing in resettlement countries. Wow. At least that's what I understood it to be. I haven't been, but that's what the website made it seem like it was about. Um, And then there's also an exhibition that's traveling called Forced from Home. And that's an exhibition that was organized by Doctors Without Borders. And it looked like it had some interactive elements. So they had like a recreation of tents that they found in camps and just what it would, what your living situation would be like if you were living in a refugee camp. That's really cool because like, I think that a lot of people think about this kind of stuff abstractly mm-hmm. and it's really hard to picture uh, for us, you know, being comfortable as we are. Yeah. Um, what what people are going through mm-hmm. um, and, and what kind of like that might do to you psychologically. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, and then the one that I really wanted to talk about because I think this is an amazing idea And I want to see it at a bigger museum, and I want to see it at museums across the country, because I think this is so important. 
Um, there's an exhibition that the Illinois Holocaust Museum in Skokie organized, which is called What We Carried. Mm-hmm. And um, a curator, I guess, he, I think he's a photographer, but the curator of the show um, talked to local Iraqi refugee communities in Portland, Chicago, Boston, and Dearborn, Michigan, and had them donate their personal items from their homes that they brought from Iraq. Wow. And they like present like they put them on a just like a flat surface and then they could write little things about like their story wow so a lot of it's in arabic but they translated it and were able to like there was one man who donated i mean not donated they got the objects back afterwards Mm -hmm. but his contribution to the show was um a pair of glasses that belonged to his mother and she had passed away and they weren't sure which country she was buried in. Oh my goodness. So that was really like the only piece of her that he had left. Yeah. Uh, there was a woman who had like teacups. There was a girl who donated her journal. Just really interesting things. And I think that's a great way of like making it real that like these are, this isn't just an abstract like, oh, the refugees and like yeah. this nebulous concept. Like they're people who have a, like, a lot in common with us you know you could see like pictures from the 80s um right about like what iraq was like in the 80s and it just i just love that idea i do too <laughs> because it's, it's another thing where like it's really easy like we've said at least twice to think about it abstractly and like you know when we were listing numbers at the beginning it's like wow those are really big numbers but it's not just like a bit like three million refugees that's like three million people who are displaced you know from one country alone in one in one year yeah that's just i i mean it's hard to think about and Mm -hmm. and the way that these shows like force you to think about it in such a human concept yeah i think that that's really really incredible so you might be Asking the question, like, oh, why should we care so much about this? And why do Catherine and I specifically care? And you're good people, so we know that you care because refugees are people who have been through a lot. As we've said. And deserve the same opportunities to engage in cultural activities and literacy activities that the rest of us do. Um, There's a labor song and... Before that, it was a poem mm-hmm. um, called Bread and Roses, and there's a line in there that says, hearts starve as well as bodies, give us bread, but give us roses, which essentially means that part of the human experience is having access to art and music and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Um, and just because you come from a low-income background doesn't mean that you shouldn't be allowed to experience this stuff. Just because there's, you know, some barriers, like, those barriers shouldn't be there. Right. I, I was, um, when I was reading about the Salt Lake Public Library, I think it was Salt Lake. It might have been somewhere else, but I'm pretty sure it was still about Salt Lake. One librarian said, like, yeah, I stayed late and kept the space open one night so that there could be a Lebanese wedding because, like, no other space would, like, do it. And, like, I've had these people come in and, like, play music because nobody else will, like, let them just play music. And, like, these people are still living their lives. Same as anyone, you know? Just because you're a refugee doesn't mean your life isn't going to continue. And everyone in my life likes to have fun and likes to enjoy themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important that we both, like, conceptualize 
um, the refugee crisis for ourselves, but also let refugees experience their culture and other people's cultures the same way that we want to. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason, one of the reasons that I care, like I specifically care Mm -hmm. um, about the refugee crisis other than, you know, what we just said, was because I spent two years getting to know a family from Bhutan who were refugees. And um, just to give you a little bit of context of their situation, they're from Bhutan, but they're of Nepali descent and Nepalese speaking. Mm -hmm. And they were forcibly removed from Bhutan in the early 90s. I think it was like 90 or 91 um, because the government... Um, had like an ethnic cleansing campaign and they claimed that people of Bhut- or Bhutanese people of Nepali descent were illegal and uh, broke the law by coming into the country even though many of them had been there since the 19th century which sounds pretty familiar sounds a little <laughs> too familiar right now so the family that I specifically worked with lived in the Beldangi 2 camp, which caught fire, and most of the camp was destroyed in 2008. Oh my goodness. Um, so the family had lived there from the early 90s until about 2010 or 2011. Mm-hmm. So the mom and dad met and were married in the camp, and their two kids were born in the camp. So they, like, didn't know anything else. Right. The kids didn't. And... Their family was kind of spread all over the world once they were were resettled. Thankfully, a few of them did live in Chicago, so they had some sort of community. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like, I just, when I think about refugees, I think about this goofy little kid that I worked with who um, told me to never give up on my dreams of doing a cartwheel one day. (laughs) And told oh me goodness. that my winter hat, mm-hmm. it's like ridiculous, was the most beautiful hat he's ever seen. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's so great. And I just like, I, I remember um, the family that uh, our friends Allie and Anna worked with our freshman year. Mm-hmm. The little girls like drew on my whiteboard in my dorm and were like, happy Mother's Day. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so cute. And they were just like these cute little girls. Now they're going to college, which is yeah crazy, but amazing. And it's just like, these people don't deserve scorn or fear no. or anything like that. You know, like we should be letting so many more people into this country. <laughs> And, like, I know that they would, that family, if I were able to, like, take them to a museum, Mm -hmm. they would have loved it. Like, we took, we took the little boy and his friend to the zoo because it was free. Right. And that was, like, amazing to them because they just, like, didn't know how to get there and, yeah, and it just didn't have the opportunity to because the parents were working all the time. Yeah. And that's another thing is if you volunteer with, um, resettled families or, like, anything like that, if you're in charge of, um, library and museum programming, like, really let them know about your free days. Yeah. Let them know about things like city passes and things mm-hmm. that they can do to, like, access these things at low cost. I mean, I know most libraries are, are free. And if you work in an academic library, talk to your administration about opening the library to the community, because my library does that, and we're much better for it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Courtney, like, posed this question of why do we care, um, 
when we were talking about this episode and I went on a very long rant, uh, which basically culminates in, in this, um, for me, like access is at this point, like written into my blood. If you work in libraries, if you work in museums, if you work in archives, access is like, it's access above everything. And your community includes all residents, not just Mm -hmm. old ones, but new ones too. Mm -hmm. No matter where they came from, no matter what their immigration status is, no matter, I, I just, I can't say it enough. Like access, access, access. It's our job to educate people and to learn from people and to give our patrons opportunities to learn from each other and about each other. And just, like, I care. (laughs) And, like, I'm sorry. I don't think we have an explicit rating on this podcast. So, like, who the S... F. Who the S? (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. You're just so fired up. I'm so fired up. I'm not even going to cut this. I can sound this down. But, like, who else is really going to care? Like, if if we leave this up to other people, it'll fall through the cracks. Like, I'm not going to expect Scott Walker and Donald (laughs) Trump and... Mike Lee and Jason Chaffetz to do this for me, you know? Like, ugh. Yeah. I, I just... We have to be the ones to do the work. We do. We do. And it is work, you know? Like, with more people, you need more resources. And as we've said in every episode, lack of resources is the reason why libraries and museums aren't perfect. But, like, mm-hmm. we have to try. Yeah. Absolutely. Ugh, okay. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> anyway. It's perfectly okay. Thank you. So, now that we've talked through that, Courtney, what's on your mind? Honestly, I have not thought about this. Um, I guess what's on my mind is my new job. Yes! You guys, Courtney got a job! I'm so excited. I'm going to be um, a student aide for a little five-year-old girl at an international school here in Chicago. Um, and she's really sweet. And she's just, like, the cutest little girl. I'm so excited. And is, ugh, she's just, she's just great. I, I can tell it's it's going to be a really good fit. Can I brag about you for a second? Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm, like, taking your time. But, like, <laughs> you okay. guys, listeners, Courtney has been, like, calling our friends who have been working in education. She's been, like, doing research. This girl's going to be, like, the most well-taken-care-of girl in this entire school. She's been on it. And I'm just, like, so proud. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. Mm. So, Catherine. Yes. What's on your mind? I also have not thought about it. Um, I guess the thing that's been on my mind, like, this whole last week and a half is the fact that um, they're redoing the... HVAC system in my library, so um, I'm working with my seven department members in one classroom all summer. That sounds like so much fun. Yeah, and we don't have access to the stacks, except for when we send runners into the stacks. (laughs) But it's, like, kind of afforded us a lot of weird opportunities in a way. Like, I get to look at the lake now instead of at my cubicle wall, which is great. (laughs) That's nice. Yeah, and I've been, like, talking to more people in the library, like, more than ever. Usually I just, like, wave at people and walk away, and now it's just like, hey, how's everything going with you? How's your office? Where is it? Um, And, like, actually getting to know people (laughs) after two years, which is nice. It's Um, nice to shake things up. Yeah, yeah. And then um, the other cool thing about it is 
uh, there are going to be some people who are just like out of town a lot this summer, like some of our grad students won't be here, so um, they asked me to take some reference desk hours, so tomorrow I start that's reference so desk training. That's so exciting! I know, I'm so excited. It's just like a couple hours a week, but... Um, that's really cool, though. Yeah, I'm sure whatever job I have when I'm out of grad school, I'll have to do some reference work, so I'm just excited to get experience now. So that's it. <laughs> All right, well, before we go, we just want to say thank you to Gabrielle Perret, who composed our theme music. Come back to Chicago. Yay, Gabrielle. We miss you. And you can find all of our future episodes on iTunes, where we're Loud Girls in Quiet Rooms, and we'd love it if you subscribed and rated and reviewed. You can also find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com lgqrpod. Follow us at lgqrpod on Twitter. And email us at lgqrpod at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to be a guest. That's it for today. I'm Courtney. And I'm Catherine. And thanks so much for listening.